And we're talking with Mike Armstrong from the Financial Exchange, whom you hear every weekday from 10 to noon right here on News Talk 99.7. Good morning, Michael. Uh, looks like the Feds are looking at the interest rates again, aren't they? They have, and that's that's clearly in a focus for a lot of people right now. So the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, did increase interest rates uh, by 25 basis points. He had forecast that pretty well. I think the big shift that has really played out over there just really the last few months has been the public view of the Fed buying the fact that, hey, they are going to really move interest rates rapidly in order to control what has been the worst inflation in four decades. I think there was a lot of doubt that the Fed and Jerome Powell would go forward with the moves that they are now forecasting. And now people seem to really be buying it. You're talking about the most recent move was 25 basis points. Now you're talking about potentially at the next meeting, a half a percent increase on the part of the Federal Reserve. And it's starting to play out in a lot of different markets. The the most noticeable one is, of course, the mortgage market. Over the last three months, you have seen the average 30-year mortgage rate climb by over 1%, which I don't think I need to tell people. That doesn't happen very often on such a rapid pace. You know, we are approaching now 5% on 30-year mortgage rates. And that you know, that is a huge shift from where we were three or four months ago, where it was low 3% range. The big question that everybody has is how is this actually going to impact the housing market? You know, there should be less competition. There should be fewer buyers if mortgage rates are higher. But because of the way that mortgage rate locks work, if you're buying a home right now, you probably locked your mortgage two or three months ago. Uh, Likewise, if you are experiencing today's interest rates, you might not close on a home until May or June, and we won't get that data until July or August. So a lot of people looking at the housing market and, you know, kind of waiting with bated breath to see what the impact is there. But, you know, I'm here to say we probably won't know the impact until later this summer. And then the other big piece that is being discussed right now is this relationship between long-term bonds and short-term bonds. And I don't want to get too technical, you know, on a quick call like this, but what we're worried about is what's called yield curve inversion. Economists across the globe have used that as an indicator of recession in the past hasn't been a perfect predictor, uh, but frequently after the yield curve inverts, as it's close to doing right now, there have been recessions that follow, and you know people are talking about that um, more more often these days than they were just a few months ago as well. So it's likely that's an indicator of portending of other things to come, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I will stress that, you know, the, the saying among economists is that the yield curve has predicted 15 of the last 10 recessions, meaning frequently it will flash a warning sign that turns out to be false. So, you know, it, it can be it can definitely be a false indicator, but nonetheless, people do look at it and, uh, you know, frequently it does end up going towards recession if that, in fact, does occur. So it's kind of like a covid test. It could be false. <laughs> and speaking it could of, be false and frequently has been false throughout history. Sure. And, and speaking of, we have a serious lockdown situation in China relating to this new COVID strain. We, we do. And um, you know, China has really pushed and maintained their zero COVID policy, at least in mainland China. They have less control over what happens in Hong Kong. And there's some bit of a blame game going on if, if you follow the, the news there that you know, uh, vaccination rates and COVID rates in Hong Kong were severely, well, vaccination rates were lower, COVID rates were higher, and they don't have the same control over the population there that they do in mainland China. And so there is a pretty big outbreak and now seems to 
whether it contributed or not, uh, there are now outbreaks on mainland China, and they are going into lockdown in those parts of the country. Shanghai has announced that they're going to be locking down half the population of the city at a time, 25 million people going into COVID lockdowns. You've seen all sorts of wild things occurring in the financial markets, as an example. You've heard of um, traders and other workers sleeping at their desks in order to be locked down in their office rather than in their homes so they can continue to work. Um, But clearly China at this stage taking an approach that almost no other country is here and while it worked with the you know, less transmissible first version of this virus, does not seem to be working terribly well with the with the Omicron or Omicron Plus or whatever we're calling this current variant. Yeah, the, the B2, I guess it's called. Well, yes. another interesting story, and it somewhat relates to China a little bit, but more to the supply chain issues. Uh, there seems to be a movement towards the end of globalization. In particular, Volkswagen is trying to, uh, trying to at least gather all of the major uh, suppliers and supply chains under their own fist. Isn't that, isn't that the case? They are. And I think, you know, backing up a moment, this has been a big topic of discussion uh, you know, really since the pandemic began is, hey, could this be or could there be a series of events that leads to less globalization? And I think you, you really have to go back to you know before the pandemic even started and i think um you know politics under donald trump which were uh you know identifying this as a problem that hey globalization while it may have made goods cheaper for all americans and you know created things like walmart where we can really save money on all sorts of items um it's created the situation where it's hollowed out the middle class and now we're beholden to on a country that you know we have big disagreements with in terms of how they treat their citizens um, now you throw Russia on top of that, the, the, you know, the invasion and war with Ukraine, and um, then the pandemic and broken supply chains on top of all of that. And I think there are a lot of big experts out there, uh, Larry Fink at, at uh, BlackRock, for one, who are saying, hey, th- this could be a dramatic shift in the way that we think about global supply chains and just globalization in general. And, you know, the cards may fall Um in ways that are unpredictable, but one company that seems to be playing along with this is Volkswagen, who you know largest auto manufacturer in the world in terms of sales, um, factories all across the globe, and they seem to be taking some you know specific steps to say we want to be less reliant on China, uh, we want to tighten up our supply chains, get away from this just-in-time manufacturing that's been talked about throughout the pandemic. And really focus on bringing our supply chains closer to our manufacturing hubs, which, um, you know, it probably will be beneficial to Volkswagen in terms of completing vehicles, but really only has one potential outcome in terms of cost, which are they really have to go up. Uh, You know, if you're creating duplication in your supply chains and saying that, hey, we're going to manufacture parts in you know, parts of Europe for our European supplies and in North America for our North American suppliers, that is going to be more costly than doing it in China, putting it on a boat and getting it to uh, getting it to Germany just in time to assemble. Uh, so, you know, we will see if other automakers follow suit and just how serious Volkswagen actually is about these steps. 
Well, it is not a simple task because it requires redesigning everything. And even if uh, even if they are somewhat successful, I think we're looking at several years before it actually begins to even gel. Uh, wouldn't that be the case? No doubt. And let's not mistake what we're seeing in Russia right now for what you could see in China, right? I mean, the steps that the Western world has taken to cut off Russia from the global economy have been dramatic and severe. And there's almost no way that you could do the same thing with China and have any sort of reasonable uh, global stability, right? They play such an integral role at every step of the manufacturing process that, you know, we're experiencing pain because of this, you know, the steps that we are taking against Russia as part of the invasion of Ukraine, we're experiencing higher oil prices. But if you attempted to make the same steps in China, even if there were no outright war, the economic impacts would be incredibly severe, which is why I don't think that that will happen anytime soon. But, you know, just perhaps this slow movement to slightly reduce the dependence on foreign countries that we may not have political agreements with. Yeah. Interesting to see. And we'll find out more about it today and every weekday on the Financial Exchange. Thanks, Michael. Thanks a lot, John.